This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com. Major funding for this Tanya class is provided by the Mettel Corporation. Additional funding is provided by Tanya students like you. Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Obviously, nobody can do a mitzvah so great all the time, but there's a very big discrepancy. Actually, it's in the Shulchan Aruch, and it's uh, the Gemara says that the Torah mandates Zekeli Veyu that you should beautify Hisnal Lefana B'Mitzvah. You should make a beautiful, beautiful Torah. You should, you should make a beautiful whatever you do. You do a mitzvah. You should beautify the mitzvah. So that's clearly in the Gemara. It's clearly mandated halachically that you should do the Hidr mitzvah. Now the the Code of Jewish law is telling us because we have to know what the parameter of the mitzvah is, what's the minimum that if you do this, you fulfill Hashem's wish, you've done the mitzvah, and what's hither, because you have to know what's the, what's the, have you done the mitzvah, haven't you done the mitzvah, but in terms of beautification of the mitzvah, this is clearly mentioned. You know, Ram Gamliel says, Boda Esrig, that was worth, what, a thousand zuz. I mean, even we don't pay that much today. Um, so you're ready to beautify the mitzvah. So that this is incorporated it's in the Torah, spelled out in the oral Torah, and the Gemara, and Allah, and the Mishnah, and Gemara, Allah, that when you do a mitzvah, it should be a beautiful Torah. Everything that you do, it should be beautiful because if it's done out of love, when you do something out of love, you do it beautifully. You're buying your wife a present, you're not going to buy her, you know, shmata. <laughs> Technically, you fulfilled your obligation, you bought her a piece of jewelry. It's only worth a dime, okay? <laughs> you, got it, you got it in the Cracker Jack box. But, <laughs> but, but uh, that marriage is not, gonna, <laughs> not going anywhere. But you buy a beautiful piece of jewelry. You put your heart into it. You put your soul into it. So that's how you look. If you view mitzvot as obligations, duties, if it's like paying income taxes, yes, then you do the bare minimum. No one can take you to a court of law. <laughs> no one's going to take you to jail. You've done the minimum. You're a citizen, upstanding citizen. You've done exactly. But no one exactly is giving you a medal of honor, and no one is asking you to marry them. You just do your obligations. If your heart is into it and you, it's done with love and it's done with feeling, it's expressed by the act being in the most beautiful way possible. So, yes, when you do the bare minimum, it's important to know what is the bare minimum because this is the will that you've done the mitzvah. You've done the mitzvah, you haven't done the mitzvah. The moment you reach the bare minimum, you've done the mitzvah. You know, you, but the Torah says you should beautify the mitzvah. And that is what Hashem wants. When the code of Jewish law says l'chathchilat is the right way to do it and then after the fact. So it all depends what's a Jew's motivation. What are you looking for? Is it a question of obligation? Then I'm looking to cut corners, whatever I can get away with. Anybody ever, 
any rabbi is going to be lenient. They can find an, uh, enough rabbis to f- find the leniency. And I do the bare minimum, that's fine. But if your desire is to do what Hashem wants of you, so since it's written the Code of Jewish Law that this is the way Hashem wants you to do the mitzvah, ideally, this is the way it should be done, then your wish is my command. I'm looking to God's corners. Yes, technically I've done the mitzvah. I'm on the train. You're on the train, you're off the train. So the moment you reach the bare minimum, you're on the train. That's the whole criteria. But on the train itself, you can be under the seat, you can be in fourth class, you can be in steerage, you can be all the way, all the way to the bottom of the boat, you can be in the dungeon, or you can be first class, you know, first class seat. So that's that's ideal, that's what Hashem wants of us. Hashem wants us to do the mitzvah with feeling, with love. As the Alter Rebbe says also in the Tanya in chapter 4, it's the only way to sustain the mitzvah. If the mitzvah, if you just do it out of rote or it's mechanical and you feel forced to do it and you feel guilt-ridden and you feel obligated to do it or you're afraid not to do it, it's not going to last. If your heart is not into it, if you don't enjoy it, if you don't love it, it's not going to last. You know, you can force yourself, but the observance gets less and less. The more it dries up, and there's no energy, and there's no enthusiasm, it's not sustainable. Mitzvot are very demanding. If you feel at every step of the way that it interferes with my life, I want to have a good time and Torah doesn't let me and I have to do this. Oy vey. And I have to come to shul again. Oy, oy, oy. And I have to daven again. Oy. What a pain in the neck. If that's how you feel, that's your feeling of Judaism. The whole thing is one big pain in the neck. And uh, you know, I was born into it and I have no choice. And you know, and feel guilt-ridden and you're afraid. Lightning is going to strike. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. Unless it's motivated by love, and unless you really love it, enjoy it. So this is really the, the life, the, the life force behind all the mitzvahs. So if you, and if you do it with love, then you don't do the bare minimum. You want to do it the most beautiful. You know, like anything else in life, when you do something lovingly, it's beautiful. You pay the extra attention. You take care, the nicest. You know, you make a party and your heart is into it, everything is beautiful, everything is sparkly, everything is perfect. You give thought to everything. The nicest paper and the nicest products and the nicest arrangements and the nicest this. If you don't care, you know, the cheapest. What do I care? You know, put out some crackers and tuna and (laughs) some old stale herring and that's it. But if your heart is into it, it's a royal feast. If the mitzvah of the code of Jerusalem is telling us, when it says ideally, because that's ideally, that's what Hashem really wants, your heart should be into it. Your heart is into it. It's a royal feast. Lay out the mitzvah in the most beautiful way. A beautiful tefillin, a beautiful Torah, a beautiful lesser, a beautiful... The beer minimum? Yes. You're on the train. You've done the mitzvah, but it's, it's nebuch. It's lifeless, soulless, dead, dry, Unfortunately, we know too much of that. We've seen too much of that. 
But that should not be our default. Our default should not be do the bare minimum. That's not what the Code of Jewish Law is telling us and teaching us. The Code of Jewish Law has to spell out what is the bare minimum because we have to know. But that's not what it's direct. That's not what it's telling. It's not the intention. It's not our default position, bare minimum. Our default position is maximum, ideal, beautiful, the way it should be. The way it and to beautify and comes to Hanukkah, every Jew in the world does mahadrim and mahadrim, beauty of beauty. So that is our default position, beautify the mitzvah. And the Torah says it, it's now the fun of a mitzvah, zekeli vanveyu, beautify the mitzvah. That is what the Torah wants, what Hashem wants of us. He wants our hearts to be into it. He wants our personal participation, not just doing it by rote. Right, reading this, and as I mentioned, Ramka looks like when you do a mitzvah, you're going to get Trump Tower. Well, you, tr- you strive for Trump Tower. In the Shulchan Aruch, I never got that feeling. That's why I asked the question. It almost sounded like you just have to pass inspection. But it says in Shulchan Aruch about it's not the fun of a mitzvah, so you should make a beautiful, whatever you do should be beautiful. So that's already telling us that, that all the lechatchilis, mm-hmm. for us, that's a bediyavit. This is, this is what Hashem wants like the code of like the ethics of our fathers once it's already taught to us and spelled out to us it's no longer milsa de chasidusa now it, this is this is this becomes the new standard right this becomes the new standard and, and this is what Hashem wants Hashem reveals everything at the right time everything happens at the right time so the fact that chasidus was revealed Hashem is revealing to us these deeper understandings, now this becomes the, the, this becomes the minimum. Like if a person says, I can live without Hasidus. I don't need Hasidus. It was good enough for my grandparents and great-grandparents before the Baal Shem Tov. All they did was study Talmud and Code of Jewish Law. Why should I study the inner, the esoteric, the soul of the Torah? If that was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Wrong. It's like saying, you know, I'm going to drive today in a horse and buggy because my, uh, my, gra- my great-grandparents drove around the horse and buggy. I'm traditional. I'm conservative. I don't change. But that's ridiculous. God made life so much easier for us. He made it easier. You have a car. You have a plane. You have a jet plane. You're going to travel to Israel on a boat? You have a week or two to get there? I mean, you can be there in a second. What, what are you wasting your time? No, I'm going to write with a pencil. <laughs> no, no computers. I mean, it's, it's absurd. Phones? No, no phones. I'm, it, that's ridiculous. That becomes the new, the new standard. So if Hashem revealed to us the Baal Shem Tev, and revealed to us the Tanya, and revealed to us the esoteric, this becomes the new minimum. As Rabbi Cheskel Abramsky said, the great Lithuanian Torah teacher, said that, Anyone who doesn't believe in Ashgach Pratis, according to the Shit of the Baal Shem Tev, today is a heretic. Because once, once, this was a Lithuanian great person. Whoever doesn't believe in divine providence as spelled out by the Baal Shem Tev, the teachings of the Baal Shem Tev, is a heretic. Because this, this, now the, this is now the new minimum. So yes, maybe before we didn't have this emphasis, or we didn't have the soul, but now once this is revealed and this is exposed, this is what Hashem wants of us. So now this becomes a new minimum. Once the code of Jewish law teaches us that this is lechatchila, this is the ideal, 
Your wish is my command. This now becomes new minimum. You know, we've elevated up the ante, elevated the... So it's a whole different world. It's a new world. Yes, it's a higher world where Hashem expects more of us, Hashem, because we are more advanced. You know, the world is moving on. Torah is growing, is moving. It's dynamic. It's not stagnant. It's, it's, it's growing, it's deeper, and it's higher, and it's more profound, and it's, it's more demanding because we also have more capacity to do more. On one hand, the world is going backwards, but on the other hand, we are advancing, and Torah is advancing, and Judaism is advancing, and godliness and truth is advancing. We're not going backwards, we're going forward. Okay, let's finish this uh, letter today. So today he's going to explain, he's going back to the beginning of the letter 29, which he quoted the verse, the end of Proverbs, Eishas Chayil Ateres Baila, that the woman is the crown of her husband. And now he's going to explain that the husband refers to the written Torah, which is the husband, and the, the uh, woman refers to the oral Torah, which is based on the written Torah. And the crown, the woman is the crown of her husband. Now he's going to explain this. Now it is known the supernal will as vested in the 613 commandments of the written Torah is hidden and covered, secreted and concealed. It is only in the oral Torah. For example, the precept of tefillin. In the written Torah it is stated, and you shall bind them for a sign of your hand and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. This is an indistinct and obscure statement, but scripture did not explain how and what to bind or what frontlets are, nor where it is between your eyes or on your hand, until the oral Torah explicates that one needs to bind a single box on the hand and four boxes on the head containing four scriptural passages. The Torah is a closed book, basically. The whole purpose of the Torah is to teach us how to live, the 613 directives and commandments teaching us how to live. You read the Torah, you're clueless, you have no idea. It says, tie it on your arm. Put it between your eyes. So it means, it means I put it on my nose, literally, between my eyes, on my nose. Is that what you put on the phone? How do I know I have to put on the phone here? It doesn't tell me anyway. On your hands. That means do I tie it on my, on my hand, I mean, on the palm of my hand. I mean, what, what does, it doesn't spell out. It doesn't tell me anything. It's a closed book. Without the oral Torah, the Torah is a, compl- is, is a closed book. I have no idea what to do. It's so unclear. Moreover, the boxes are to be made of prepared leather, and necessarily square, and to be tied by means of leather straps, which need to be black, with all the other detailed rulings governing the making of tefillin that were stated orally, i.e. that are found in the oral Torah. Also, on your hand refers only to the arm and not to the palm of the hand, and between your eyes refers to the scalp and not to the forehead. It is thus only the detailed halacha of the oral Torah that enable us to perform this mitzvah in keeping with the supernal will. Likewise, all the commandments of the Torah, whether they be positive precepts or prohibitory precepts, are not revealed and known and made explicit except through the oral Torah. Torah itself, it's like a concept, an idea. If it's just an idea, the details don't matter. You know, as long as you get the general gist. It doesn't matter. It has to be perfect, precise, exactly. What's the big deal? But if 
if it's a question of fulfilling Hashem's wish, a will, a wish, has to be precise. If it's not 100%, exactly the way I want it, what do I have? Nothing. But I followed 99.9% of what you wanted. What do you have? Zero. You didn't do what I asked. It's very nice. You did 99.9%. You want to get a medal for it. But you have done nothing. You did not do what I wanted. I gave you a hundred steps, directions, and you followed every single step. The last step, instead of making a right, you made a left. Okay, so I'm, nobody is perfect. I did 99.9 what you asked. <laughs> no, you did nothing. I asked you to be here and you were there. You didn't do what I asked, period. There's no, there's no half percentage. When it comes to a concept, I can understand an idea. I can partially understand an idea. But when it comes to will, it's, you can't be half pregnant. Yes or no? You did or you didn't do? You know? A customer walks into the store, the store has to be 100%. If it's not 100% the way I like it, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I don't care. Don't tell me stories. I don't want to hear your rationalizations, your bubblemizers, your stories, your excuses. If it's not exactly the way I want it, I'm out. I, wo- I vote with my feet. Goodbye. You're out of business. Hey, the people who are in business have to be in tune with what the customer wants. Their want. It has to be 100% the way I want. When you marry someone, you have a relationship with someone, it has to be, there's an intangible factor. You know, a person could be on the books, could be perfect, uh, but it doesn't work that way. Either it touches you, it resonates with you, this is what I want, or it's not what I want. It, 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 there's no, it's something very intangible. Will is something very real and very deep. And it's all-encompassing. Yes or no? Because it's what I want. So if it's not what I want, then, then I have nothing. So if the mitzvah is what Hashem wants, it has to be precise. What's the big deal if I put it here? It has to be here. It has to be leather. It has to be black. And it has to be square. And it has to be here and not here. What's the big deal? It's the idea. It's the sentiment. No, it's not the sentiment. It's not the idea. It's what I want. You did what I want. You didn't do what I want. So if you veer one iota off the mitzvah, it's, not a, it's no longer a mitzvah. I don't know what you're wearing, but it's not tefillin. It's not Judaism. Call it whatever you want. Make up your own religion, but don't call it Judaism. Hashem says, it's not what I ask, it's not what I want. So what are you giving me? But it's the idea, it's the feeling, it's the sentiment, it's the generalities. No. I asked, I want something. I asked you. So who spells out what Hashem wants? It's the oral Torah. Without the oral Torah, I'm lost. I have nothing. So the crown, the crown which is, transcends the head, which sits on top of the head, which is the will, which transcends the intellect, transcends the concept and the idea. This is the neshama, this is the will of Hashem. This you only get through the oral Torah. Very specific, very precise, spelled out in great detail. You say, it's crazy making. It's not crazy making. This is, this is will. <laughs> will is very detailed and very precise. It has to be precise. If it's not precise... You have zero. So the fill-in was put on first when? When Moshe came down? Well, that's a uh, question because two of the parchments of the tefillin, the four parchments in the tefillin, two of those parchments were not said till the 40th year. 
That's right. So the question is, did their tefillin, did they put on tefillin, they only had two, two boxes, two, two parchments, and then they added the other two, or did they only start putting on tefillin at the end of the 40 years when they entered the land of Israel? That, that, that's, a, that's a discussion. It's a whole discussion. Like in the holidays, did they keep, start keeping the holidays right away? For example, they didn't offer a Paschal lamb. Only the first anniversary they offer the Paschal lamb. The desert didn't offer a Paschal lamb. But did they keep the holidays? They ate matzah. Did they, have to, did they bake matzah? As it is, they ate the manna, but did they bake matzah? Did they keep the holidays? Shabbat they kept right away. The Torah was given on Shabbat. And the next Shabbat, they started keeping Shabbat. Laws of uh, kosher, they started keeping right away. But uh, the question is, so whatever. whatever. So th- th- these are all discussions. For instance, the prohibitory precept that has been stated with respect to the Shabbos, you shall do no work. The written Torah does not specify what constitutes work. In the oral Torah, however, it is explicated to refer to the well-known 39 forms of work and not only to the carrying of stones or heavy beams, which is only rabbinically prohibited. Though carrying rocks and beams is more tiring than some of the 39 prohibited forms of work, it does not fall into any of the categories of work that the Torah prohibits on Shabbat. So it says like this. The Torah says don't do work on Shabbat. What does it mean? What does work mean? It doesn't spell it out. The Torah doesn't tell us. What's considered work? If I turn on a switch, it's considered work on Shabbat, and you get stoned. If I, if I uh, carry cheer up and down the steps, if I, weigh, if I carry, like Hanshi did, 613 pounds, <laughs> 630 pounds, oh, that's not considered work. What, what's going on here? So the oral Torah explains that the Torah means work, it means creative work. 39 categories of creative work which we derive from the tabernacle. The Torah says don't build a tabernacle on Shabbat. So whatever went into building a tabernacle, all the creative work, that's, that's prohibited on Shabbat. Six days a week God created the world and God rested. It's not that God needed a rest. He was tired, he was exhausted, he needed a break. God created the whole world with ten utterances. God created, God rested from his creativity, so to speak. So too, six days a week, we're the movers and shakers, and we're creative, and we're changing the world, improving the world. And one day a week, we rest, we, 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 we withdraw inward, and we stop extending ourselves creatively. So this is the oral tradition that spells it out. So it's the oral tradition that tells us that work are the 39 forms of work, and not carrying of stones and heavy beams. So we have two versions here. Either we stop right there, that carrying stones and heavy beams, uh, um, lifting weights is not work. But there's another version in the parentheses that says, and not only moving stones and carrying stones or heavy beams. That's obviously, that's considered work. But in addition to that, the rabbi spelled out 39 categories of anything creative is also considered work. Why these two different versions? Because we actually have an argument. Nachmanides says, says in the Torah, in the, the book of Leviticus, in Emmer, that in the seventh, um, it says that on Rosh Hashanah, the first of the seventh month, 
It should be to use Shabbaton, a resting, a day of rest. So Nachmanides explains that what the Torah is telling us is that on the holidays and on Shabbat, you must rest. And this is biblical, meaning that even those things that are not work, don't fall into the category, the 39 categories of creative work. But on Shabbat, you have to rest. You can't exert yourself. Because otherwise, even if a person will be careful and not do any creative work, will avoid the 39 categories of creative work, but the Torah doesn't want you to spend the whole day. You can spend the whole day. Technically, you haven't violated Shabbat, but you spend the whole day working. You'll measure, you'll measure, you'll weigh, you'll fill your barrels of wine, you'll rearrange your house, you'll move up and down. I mean, there's so much you can do. And if you're living in an Erev or a Walden city, you can even open your store and you can... I mean, it could be a regular work day. So technically, I did not violate the Shabbat because I'm not doing any creative work, but I'm busy all day doing heavy work, heavy labor. So the Torah mandates us. There's a biblical mandate that you have to rest. Hashem wants us to rest. Stop and seize. Seize and desist from all hard labor and work and even creative labor. So according to the Nachmanides, there's a biblical obligation that you're not allowed to exert yourself on Shabbat. You have to relax and rest. Your work should be exclusively spiritual work. Torah, Prayer, serving Hashem. That, that's what Anachmanides understands. Now, Maimonides starts out also with a blanket statement in the laws of Shabbat. He says, it says in the Torah, you should rest even from those things that are not part of the 39 categories of work. You're obligated to rest. Period. So the Magid Mishnah wants to say that Maimonides agrees with Nachmanides, that, it, it, that this is biblical, it's not just rabbinic. There's a biblical obligation for a Jew to rest. If a Jew sits and exerts himself and schleps benches all day on Shabbat and is exerting himself, even though technically I haven't violated the turn of care, I'm violating Shabbat. You're not resting. But on the other hand, there are those who say no, that this is only rabbinic. Biblically, it's only the 39, only creative work is prohibited. Any work that's not creative, even though you're sweating, and you're toiling and you're exerting yourself, biblically I haven't violated the Shabbat. But the rabbi said, it's not the spirit of Shabbat, so the rabbi said that we should rest and we shouldn't do all of these uh, you know, heavy lifting. But it's only rabbin. So that's, that explains the two versions. According to the version that this whole thing is rabbinic, he says that the oral tradition has to clarify for us that what is work Work means creative work and not heavy labor. But according to the parentheses where he says, the rabbis explain that not only work is not only heavy labor, that we understand. Torah says you have to rest. But in addition, even switching on a light doesn't take a lot. It doesn't, you don't have to exert yourself. It's no big deal. I just turn on the light. The rabbis explain that this is the whole theme, the creative work, any creative work you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. You have to refrain from 39 categories of work. So not only is heavy labor biblically mandated, but any creative work, even the slightest expression of creativity on Shabbat, 
is absolutely great. Okay, so these, these are the two versions, okay? According to the alternative reading of our text, and not only to the carrying of stones or heavy beams, this work is prohibited by the Torah, because the Rambam or the states that the term Shabbaton, a day of rest, that is used with regard to Yom Tov. And the same applies with regard to the commandment Tishbat, you shall rest, or Shabbat, because also to those activities do not fall only fall within the 39 defined categories of prohibitive work, but are nevertheless prohibited by the Torah, since they rob a person of his rest and tranquility. In the first of his comments on this subject, the Magad Mishnah argues that the Rambam also holds that you should rest, forbids every strenuous work does not fall within the 39 categories governed by the prohibition. Do not do any work. Though the Lechem Mishnah refutes this argument, this remains the view of the Magad Mishnah. Others hold that both readings are valid. Each corresponds to one side of a debate in the Yerushalami, as to whether or not the Torah prohibits certain forms of work during the sabbatical year, and by extension during Shabbat as well, because it is a time of rest even when there is no additional specific prohibition. And as it is with these, with the above examples of tefillin and Shabbat, so it is with all the commandments, whether they are positive precepts or prohibiting precepts. They are indistinct and they are explicated and revealed and known only through the oral Torah. Every single mitzvah, everything, you, you, it must be right without the oral Torah that's what the, Maimonides says the oral Torah was given simultaneously with the written Torah see the written Torah is like a code Hashem told Moshe just write down the code but all the details everything is hinted in the Torah and everything is there you have to know how to decode it but simultaneously Hashem gave Moshe the oral tradition because otherwise the, you have to otherwise the Torah is a closed book the Jewish people didn't have to wait 2,000 years till the Talmud was written to figure out how to keep how to, to observe the 613 mitzvot from day one they knew exactly and it was transmitted orally and it was transmitted from parent to child and it was transmitted from the Jewish Supreme Court to the next court and they lived it and they performed it so they knew exactly how to do the mitzvah when the Talmud says, how do we know this? The Talmud is just trying to derive the source in the Torah. It's not that before they asked this question, they didn't know how to do the mitzvah. They, they did the mitzvah precisely, exactly. They know exactly how to do the mitzvah. But now they want to know the source. Everything has to be in the Torah. Everything has to be hinted in the Torah. So the Talmud discusses what's the source, where do I see it in the Torah. But the oral tradition was handed down orally from day one. Moshe came down the mountain and he taught the Jewish people, how to fulfill all 630 mitzvot in its detail and in its specificity. <laughs> in all its detail. From day one, this came together. This is like a husband and wife. They were together. From day one, they were together. They came together, the two Torahs, the written Torah as well as the oral Torah. But it's the oral Torah that really enables us to actually fulfill the will of Hashem. This is why scripture says of the old Torah, and you shall not cast off the teaching of your mother, as stated in the Zohar. Metaphorically speaking, just as all the organs of a child are compromised very latently in the sperm of the father, and the mother brings this out into the state of manifestation when giving birth to a child complete with 248 organs and 365 signs. This is an instant of the superior measure of Fina, that was granted to women the power to make latent gifts manifest in So you have Torah of you have the Torah of your father, and the Torah of your mother. The Torah of your father refers to the written Torah. The Torah of your mother refers to the oral Torah. Why? Because just like the different roles, the father and the mother, 
This seed comes from the Father. But it's all, it's all it is, is just a potential. And it's only when the seed is in the mother's womb, for the child's in the mother's womb for nine months, that the child is formed. From that seed, the child is formed, 248 limbs, fully formed. And it's only then the mother gives birth to a, a completed child, a whole child. So the Torah, the written Torah, is like the seed. It's the kernel. It's the essence. But the, the oral Torah is like the mother that spells it all out. From one verse in the Torah, you end up with a whole tractate where everything is spelled out in specifics and detail. Now I have a fully formed child. Now I have something viable, something, something real. Exactly to do the 248 positive precepts and the 365 prohibitory precepts emerge from obscurity to manifestation to the old Torah, which is therefore called the teachings of your mother. Whereas the beginning of verse, heed my son, the admonitions of your father, alludes to the written Torah, which derives from the supernal chokhmah, which is called father. This then is the meaning of the verse quoted at the onset of the present. The woman of valor is the crown of her husband. For the old Torah is termed a woman of valor who gives, who gives birth to and raises many legions. As it's written, an alamot, maidens, without number. Do not read alamot, but olamot, worlds. These innumerable worlds alluding to the halachot that are without number as stated in the Tikkunim. All of these halachot are manifestations of the supernal will which is hidden in the written Torah. There's no limit to the halacha and to the details and the halacha that are spelled out, all derived from that seed, from that kernel. But it's all spelled out and it's, you know, in so many different ways. Um, so this refers to, to the halacha. And we see the, the books of halacha and the way expanded and articulated and spelled out in all different situations, it's almost infinite. The application of the Torah, the application to real life, you know, it, so the application is, it's, it's just like life itself is so complex and so almost infinite. There's so many different variations and so many, and in every situation, you have to apply the halach. What does Hashem want from me at this moment, at this moment, at this time? So every moment is different and every, every uh, situation is different and every person is different. And to apply the will and the halacha and the truth and the will of Hashem at this moment, it's almost inexhaustible, it's infinite to be able to spell it out and to be able to apply the halacha, this situation and that situation. And it's amazing, you know, you look in any area in Jewish life, you can find thousands, hundreds, thousands of books just on that, spelling out and discussing just that single halacha and how it's all spelled out in different situations in this way and that way and the other way. So this is the, the Eishas Chayil that gives birth to all these infin infinite worlds, to all these infinite variations and expressions of the halach. And it all comes from a point, one point. The oral Torah is thus called a woman of valor, for it gives birth to multitudinous 
the legions of laws. Yet the Rebbe will now answer one of his opening questions. Why is it that specifically halachot are referred to as the crown of the Torah? Also, why is an individual who studies specifically halachot every day assured of a share in the world to come? Supernal will, which belongs to the sphere of Kehla, literally crown, is exceedingly more sublime than the level of the supernal Chachma, just as a crown or wreath is higher than the brains in the head. This is why the halachot are referred to as a crown and the crown of the Torah, but they reveal the supernal will, which is at the level of Kesar. So in the beginning, he's quoted that those who study the Mishnah, those who study the Halacha, which is called the crown of the Torah, they are assured a shear of the world to come. So he's saying, yes, studying Torah is very precious. Studying any part of the Torah is very precious. But there's something head and shoulders above, something that's transcendent when you study Halacha. When you study the code of Jewish law, you study halacha, you study the Mishnah, the oral Torah, the Mishnah, the halacha. Because the Mishnah, the halacha, spells out the will of Hashem. When you're studying Torah, you're studying, you're studying so to speak, the mind of Hashem. But when you're studying the halacha of Torah, the code of Jewish law, you're studying the will of Hashem. Which is the crown, which transcends the mind. The will is expression of the soul, which is transcendent, much greater than the mind. So when you're studying in the Torah itself, you're studying that part of the Torah, which reveals and expresses the will of Hashem, it's something very special. Crown of Torahs, the crown jewels of the Torah, it's something that's extraordinary, something very special. That's why it's only when a Jew studies that part of the Torah that he concludes that you guarantee the shear in the world to come. Likewise, whoever studies specifically Allah is assured of a shear in the world to come by investing his nefesh ruach and the in his eternal will, as stated above, that the garments for the soul in the world to come are the mitzvah, please embody the supernal will, which is clarified and delineated by Allah. So just like he said that by fulfilling the mitzvah, fulfilling, doing Hashem's will, this becomes the garments of the soul that envelop the soul with the will of Hashem, which contains within it the pleasure of Hashem. And these garments which come from the external, from the will of Hashem, also enable the soul to receive this revelation of the pleasure of Hashem in the world to come, in the afterlife, and ultimately in the world to come to the coming of Mashiach. So when you study Torah and you're studying the will of Hashem, you're studying that part of the Torah which specifically reveals and expresses the will of Hashem, the halacha, halachic part of the Torah, your soul, your nefesh, ruach, neshama, your mind, your heart, your, your soul is enveloped in the will of Hashem and therefore your soul is able to receive the reward, the revelation of the pleasure of Hashem because we said the pleasure of Hashem is intimately connected with the intellect. When you learn, when you study, your mind, when you understand something well, it reveals the pleasure. So by studying the, the, studying the Torah, and by studying that part of the Torah, which is the will of Hashem, you are uniquely positioning your soul to be able to receive the revelation and the pleasure of the pleasure of Hashem. So your soul is enveloped, your nefesh, ruach, and Hashem becomes enveloped in the will of Hashem, which enables it to receive 
and the revelation of the pleasure of Hashem, that your soul will be able to comprehend and internalize and sense at least a glimmer, a ray, or something of that infinite, of that divine infinity of Hashem Himself. And the Neshama will be able to partake. And that's why he says, whoever studies the laws of Torah is guaranteed a share in the world to come. Because in the afterlife, the difference between Mashiach and resurrection and the afterlife, as we learned in other letters, previous letters, that the, the uh, Mashiach and the resurrection is every Jew has a she- will have a shear in the resurrection, in the, in, the, in the Mashiach, but that's because of the mitzvah that we do. We do the will of Hashem, and therefore we have a, a shear in the, the resurrection. But in the Gan Eden, in the afterlife, that's, the reward is purely spiritual. The reward is the soul basks in the ray of Hashem and in understanding godliness. So those who come to heaven with the studying of the Talmud have the Torah. It's not enough the mitzvah, but they also have the studying of Torah. They, their souls are able to enjoy um, the pleasure and the ecstasy of this revelation. So that's why he emphasizes here studying of Torah. Those who study Torah are guaranteed in the afterlife that their souls will bask in the Garden of Eden, will bask in the pleasures of revelation of Hashem's self, Hashem's infinite self, His pleasure, because they studied His will and they studied the halacha. So because they studied His will, therefore this envelops them and enables them to perceive and to receive the uh, nourishment and the sustenance from the revelation of Hashem's infinite pleasure. Versus when Mashiach, after the resurrection, that will be physical, that will, that will be bodily, will be bodily resurrected. That comes as a result of the mitzvot, physical mitzvot that we do. So the physical mitzvot that we do, and every Jew is connected to mitzvot. Not every Jew is connected to, to the studying of Torah, but every Jew in the world is connected to the doing of the mitzvot. So every Jew will have a part in the Tchiyat HaMesim, in the resurrection. But Ganeiden, this is a spiritual experience. So those Jews who are into Torah, into spiritual experiences, they will... Um, Predominantly, they will enjoy the, uh, in, in the, that experience in the afterlife. So that comes from studying of Torah. That's why he says, just like every Jew has to fulfill all 613 mitzvot, physically fulfill all 613 mitzvot, which is why the soul has to come down and be reincarnated many times over in order to enable us to fulfill all 613 mitzvot, so we should be fully enveloped by Hashem's will, which will enable us in the uh, future, and Mashiach and Resurrection will be able to receive that infinite revelation. But in order to enjoy, here when it says Olam Haba, it means in the afterlife. So whoever studies Halacha every day will be guaranteed and assured that the soul will be able to enjoy the afterlife, be able to enjoy the revelation of Hashem's pleasure, of Hashem's intimate self, His infinite self, His infinite light. And uh, because they study the will of Hashem, and they're enveloped by that, so they'll have, that will also act as a screen. It will enable them to be able to glimpse. Otherwise, you look at the sun, you can't look at the sun. It's too intense. It will blind you. It's too blinding. So a soul is finite. No matter how spiritual a soul is, no matter how sublime a soul is, the infinite is too blinding. And the angels will sit and meditate thousands of years. No coffee breaks. 
No eating, no sleeping, no drinking. They're finite, conscious, sentient beings. And they can't receive the infinite. And the soul, no matter how you can meditate, you can be spiritual, you can be sublime, higher levels of consciousness, no matter how far you reach, ultimately we're finite, we're limited. There's no way we can even glimpse at the infinite. It will completely blind us and completely destroy us. So it's only these garments, the mitzvot, and by studying the halach, and of course not just studying the halach, but living the halach, because you can't just study, it's not just intellectual, it's living the halach, but also studying the halach, these garments enable us to receive the light without being destroyed, without being nullified. The garments that come from the mitzvot and from studying the halach. So the soul is enveloped by the will of Hashem. You're studying the will of Hashem. So these, this will of Hashem envelops the soul and elevates the soul and enables the soul to receive the infinite light without being destroyed in the process. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.